We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John and just a little bit of a brief review. We've been kind of, I've been kind of focusing on the last few weeks of Jesus' life on earth. Um, I just can't help but think that as Jesus would know that he's, he's going to the cross and he's going to be leaving this earth, that the teaching that he would be having would be as impactful as it could possibly be. He'd be delivering those messages that he would really want to, to resonate in the hearts and the minds of his disciples, all of his disciples, but especially those 11, 12 minus Judas, those 11 who are going to carry the word to the uttermost parts of the earth, which would include us. So I've been looking at different, different teachings of Jesus, and I've kind of in, I've intentionally chosen to use a different teaching from the, each one of the Gospels, because I'm trying to to help us to understand and begin to realize as you're studying the word on your own, you're reading a word on your own, that each one of these men that God used to pen the different gospels came at things from within their personalities, from within their educations, and they, they were giving their message in a particular, it's God's message, but directed towards different groups of people more directly. Not that we don't gain and glean from the whole entirety of Scripture. But when we understand sometimes where the original writers were targeting, if you recall, we, when we looked at Matthew, Matthew uh, was really targeting more of a Jewish audience. So when he was teaching, the real focus uh, that he had in his teaching was that Jesus was the Savior and King that the Jewish people had been waiting for for hundreds of years to come up, come and, and establish the kingdom of God. He was coming at it more from a Jewish perspective to try and really focus the Jewish mind on who Jesus really was. And then we looked at Mark, and I looked at Mark and a couple different stories and teachings of Jesus. And Mark, Mark was really directing it, we believe, more towards people outside of Jerusalem, outside of that real Jewish culture. He was trying to, to really show, when you look through Mark, if you want to see Jesus doing some really cool stuff, it's everywhere, but in Mark, it's all over the place. He was showing in the Gospel of Mark and the way he wrote that he's showing Jesus in action, demonstrating supernaturally, miraculously, the divinity, that he was divine, through what he was doing, no human being could ever do. And he wrote kind of from that perspective. And then Luke. Luke, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Luke was probably the most educated of all of them. Uh, historically, he was, you know, as, as many theologians have said and even secular historians have said, he was probably one of the best historians they've ever seen. When you read the Gospel of Luke, you're getting a history lesson with everything Everything put in order. So from an intellectual level, the Greek mind would read this and it would resonate with that intellectual Greek mindset more than the other Gospels would. And he really focused on the fact that Jesus not only was the long-awaited Messiah for the Jewish people, but that he was a long-awaited Messiah for everyone. Praise God for that. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, and the title of my message this morning is, Jesus Knew Who He Was, Do You? And it was interesting because the week progressed and I'm preparing on and working on my sermon and praying about it. I'm looking at that title and I thought, boy, that could, get, that could be confusing. The do you part. Because when I originally wrote down the title, it was, Jesus Knows Who He Is, Do You Know Who You Are? And as I was working on the message, 
it started to become, Jesus knows who he is, do you know who he is? And then I came to this wonderful observation and realization, it means both. Way more than I intended when I wrote it down the first time. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John was written in the very last chapter. It says the purpose. In John 20, verse 31, it says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So he tells us, this is why I wrote this book. And if you go all the way back to John chapter 1, 1, and he's talking about the Word, you know, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, and the Word became flesh. So John's message is, is clearly to tell us this is who he is. And this is why he came. As a matter of fact, his real, I think, is more primary focus almost than anything else. It's, it's not about teaching us history. It's about causing us to really think about the question, what does the coming of Jesus mean? What does it mean? And, and Peter, or excuse me, John focused way, way more on the words Jesus spoke than what he did. So if you read the Gospel of John, especially the section we're going to be looking at today starting in chapter 13, you're going to see things in there that you're not going to see in the other Gospels. He is, it, it's, there's, there's, those chapters 13 through 17 are sometimes called the upper room discourse. You know, if you read the other Gospels about that, that Last Supper, all of a sudden it's the Last Supper and the next thing you know they're in the Garden of Eden. Excuse me, not the Garden of Eden. That'd have been a trick. <laughs> Garden of Gethsemane. Revelation. Yeah, <laughs> Revelation. All right. <laughs> you could have just said, "Geez, Mike, you're stupid." <laughs> and they both could have been true. But in the Gospel of John, he goes into four chapters. John sharing with us some of the most amazing teachings that Jesus spoke throughout his ministry, and his ministry is coming to an end on this earth. And the focus. And John, just to give us another little grip on John, John was one of those disciples that was with him the whole time. He was, he was a fisherman. I loved, I loved him and his brother's nickname. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The Sons of Thunder. He must have mellowed a lot. When I picture him reclining at Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, I don't see him as the Son of Thunder. I think, wow, did Jesus do a work in that man? That fisherman. He was one of the sons of thunder. As a matter of fact, he was in that, that, that core group of the three that Jesus always took aside with him. John, and I don't think it's in a prideful way at all, he just is the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think, I think we see a witness to that even when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And down there stands his mother, his earthly mother. And there stands John. And he says, woman, this is your son. To John, John, this is your mother. Jesus entrusted his earthly mother to John. His relationship with Jesus was amazing. So to give us a little context, we're going to be starting in chapter 13, verse 1, but I always like to back up a little bit. And if we go back a little bit in there, we see it says in chapter 12, six days before the Passover. So we're close. Jesus has been working his way to Jerusalem. 
And you're going to hear me use the phrase, and you're going to hear the Word of God use the phrase, the hour had come. And the hour is coming and it's getting very near. And they've been working their way all the way from Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee, and out in the country of the, 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 the province of Galilee. And they've kind of worked their way down around. They got down to the Jordan River, and now they're working their way down the Jordan River Valley. And, and if you re- know your Bible, if you read the story, you'll, you'll maybe remember as they came into to, uh, Jericho, there, there's this, this uh, healing of Bartimaeus, the blind guy. I've been focusing on that little story a lot this week. Bartimaeus is throwing a fit and throwing a fuss and screaming for getting healing. They're trying to say, shut up, shut that guy up. But Jesus in his compassion and his love says, what is it you want? And he says, I want to see. And he says, you ask for it, it's yours. His sight was restored. And he, he continues to, to work his way towards Jerusalem. Oh, before he got out of, out of the city, he He's walking through and the crowds are all around him and there's this short little guy. Remember his name? The song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. This tax collector that everybody hated. You know, Jesus is walking to the cross and he stops and he sees this goofball up in a tree and knows that everybody hates him, knows he's a tax collector, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down for salvation has come to your house today. God, what a God we have. Heading to the cross to tie and to be tormented and to suffer. And he saves a tax collector and goes and has a meal in his house. And by the way, it really ticked off the religious people. They wanted to kill him more than ever. And we see in this setting, it talks about Jesus is in Bethany. And if you remember, Bethany is just, just up the hill, up the mountain, about a mile from Jerusalem. And he's at a house. And the Gospel of Mark says it's Simon the leper's house. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there, you know, his good friends. And Mary's, Mary's, uh, Martha's doing her thing, waiting on everybody. And Mary comes with all this expensive perfume. And Casey touched on this last week in that powerful message that she shared about Judas, but we get a glimpse of Judas. Don't waste that. What are we doing? We could sell that for 300 denarii or something. 300 days wages and we could give it to the poor. Well, we know better because the Bible tells us Judas was a crook. And he says Jesus is starting to make clearer and clearer and clearer to his disciples what's coming. And he says, leave her alone. Let her save that perfume for my burial. They're still not getting it completely, but Jesus is, he knows the hour has come and he's starting to make it clearer and clearer and clearer to them. And in John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? I love it when we get to see the humanity of Jesus. He knew what was coming. And it was stirring in his soul because he knew what he was going to have to endure for our sin. And he says in that verse, he closes it, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a question. And the way he says it, it's like, that's a stupid question. Of course not, because he concludes the verse with, for this very purpose, I have come. This is why Jesus came. So now we're going to fast forward a few days to John chapter 13, verse 1. 
And I want to encourage you in this next week, read chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Because we're, there's so much, we're going to hardly get past two or three verses. But there's so much to read. And one of those verses is verse 1, where it says, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. You can read that verse and think it's nothing more than an introduction to what's coming. Oh, there is so much stuck in that little verse. Look at that verse, the first part. Jesus knew His hour had come. Jesus knew. We, we need to get this out of our heads somehow that Jesus was a victim. He was not a victim. You'll hear me say this two, three times. He was not a victim. He was the victor. He knew exactly what was coming and it troubled his soul, but he knew it was coming and he knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do. As I said in John 12, 27, for this very purpose, at this moment, his public ministry is about over. He's about through. Any ministry that's going to take place between now and the time he is crucified is going to be primarily with his, 12, his 11 disciples after he tells Judas to leave. So he's calling in those that have been called to establish the church and spread the gospel. Like us. That's what we're called to do. In these last hours, he spent his time and, and try, to, try to put yourself in their place a little bit. These, these, are, these are 11, 12 guys who have walked away from everything. It's just as if Jesus called any of us and said, quit whatever you're doing, follow me. Leave everything behind and follow me. Quit your job, get rid of your boat. You're not going to fish anymore, you're going to fish for men. Follow me. Matthew, I know you've been stealing from the people and you're kind of rich because you were a tax collector. Stop it. Follow me. They'd left everything and for three years they'd been following Jesus around this desert on these dirty roads experiencing amazing popularity and unbelievable hatred and persecution. And now he's going to tell them, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't go. I mean, would that shake your world or what? Because they don't understand yet completely what's happening. They have given up everything to follow Jesus the Messiah. And in their minds, they were going to get some prime seats in the new government when the kingdom was established. Because they didn't get it completely. And all of a sudden, it's like a great big eraser. Forget all that, guys. I'm going. And you can't come. So when you read these next four chapters, Jesus is really teaching them, encouraging them, explaining to them. He spends a good amount of time talking about the Holy Spirit who I'm going to send. So this is kind of the process, the setting that's taking place because he knew the hour had come. And then the second part of the verse said that he should depart from this world. That's an interesting phrase. We can read it quickly, but that was kind of a Jewish phrase. That's one of their ways of saying he's going to die. They just spoke it in such a way that it was almost casual. It's time to depart from this world, as if you're going from one place to another. And you are. And for Jesus, it was leaving the earth 
the world he had been sent to save and returning to the full glory of God, the throne at the right hand of the Father. Jesus understood this. He knew the hour was come from this world. The time had come. You know, we don't see the cross mentioned in verse 1, but the cross is a shadow of the cross is all over verse 1. And Jesus knows it's coming. And then he goes on in that verse and says, having loved his own. Who were his own? Well, in that particular moment, in that particular upper room, it's the disciples. But it didn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. His own are all who accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Those are his own. And it says he loved his own. Now, this might sound a little weird. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I believe Jesus loves all human beings that he has created. I believe that for a couple of reasons, both in Scripture. You know, John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. But even more clearly in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But I believe it's a different kind of love for his own. You know, love is one of those things. I can love a lot of people. But it's a different flavor, if you would, of love when you love me back. Love that responds with love. It's just a whole nother level. Whole nother, another experience of love. And Jesus loves his own. And then it goes on and says, he loved them to the end. Now, if you would study that phrase, I love them to the end. It means he loved them to the fullest extent possible. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them eternally. God loves His children. You know, He doesn't keep a scorecard. We hear this so often, but we still go back into this trap of thinking somehow or other we don't deserve it, we're, we're, we're not good enough, and the reality is, yes, you're not, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't impact how much He loves you anyway. We mess up. He loves you. You do something wonderful. He loves you. You can't get him. If you're his child, truly, you can't get him to love you less and you can't get him to love you more. It's like the whole package is there. It's who he is. It's his character. He loves to the end. He loved us by leaving heaven and coming to earth and living in this flesh and bone body. He loved us by walking to the cross and dying for our sins. He loved us when he ascended to heaven, and he still, it's, the Bible says he's interceding for us, even now, he loves us. He loves us so much that he promises to send the Holy Spirit, which he has sent and dwells in every believer. He loves us so much that he says, I am coming back to get you all one day because I love you so much. Man, does he love us. I mean, 
We can't comprehend with a natural mind the kind of love that really is because we don't experience it anywhere else on earth. I don't care how much you love someone or how much they love you, it, it's not the same. And that's why it's so hard. But when we, when we just start to get a, a taste of his love in our life, it radically wrecks us. It changes us. It has the power to break all the bondages, all the chains, and set us free. It's an amazing love. And he loves us to the end, eternally loving us. In verse 2, he goes and, and makes a reference to Judas. And I'm not going to spend hardly any time on Judas today. Casey did a great job with that last week. It just simply says, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus says, you know, whatever you're going to do, do it quick, and let's get on with it. And Judas leaves. And then, but I want to do want to read verses, um, I'm going to start with just verse 34 of chapter 3, backing way up for a second. Because in verse 3, when I read it, there's a couple things that you hear me harp on all the time. But you may not see them there. Maybe I'm seeing things. You'll have to be the judge. But in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 3, it says, For whom he, for he whom God has sent, I should tell you, John the Baptist is speaking here. Okay? John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus. And he says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. For the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. All man, all God. I believe that everything was subservient to the purposes of Jesus. All things were given to him. He was not a victim. I believe when they're screaming, if you're Jesus, if you're the king, call 10,000 angels, he could have. But he didn't. All things. And it's important to understand that that's the authority that was given to Jesus as he walked the earth. All things were given unto him. Jesus understood that. Jesus knew who he was. And he understood the authority that he had. All of the purposes of God were subservient and all of the things on the earth were subservient to him. God had given this authority to him. And boy, at this particular hour, that knowledge and understanding is really important. Because his soul was troubled. If we jumped ahead to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see he's wrestling with this thing. As he's sweating drops of blood. But he understood. He understood the authority that he had in the Father. Jesus was the victor, not the victim. He went to the cross willingly. You know, you can imagine Satan thinking, I got him. The snare had been set. The trap had been set. Judas had taken the bait. Jesus was going to betray, be betrayed. The devil and all his demons were probably thinking, finally, he's been kicking our tail for three years. It's our turn. Thinking somehow or other, Jesus was going to become the victim of Satan. And he was going to kill him and put it into this plan of God's. Remember, the demons used to shout out occasionally, We knew who you are. You're the Son of God. Devil knew who he was messing with. And he thought he had him. Boy, did he blow it. He was nothing but a tool, a puppet, 
in the hands of an almighty God. His purposes were being fulfilled. If you'd have been watching that day in Jerusalem, you'd have thought, oh my gosh. We missed it again. Wrong Messiah. They're nailing him to a cross. They're scourging him with a whip of nine tails. He's bleeding everywhere. And it was all part of the plan. I believe Jesus could have stopped it any time he wanted. He chose not to. So when we see some of those movies or we even read and imagine in our minds this poor Jesus, the only thing that could possibly justify me thinking this poor Jesus is I am seeing my guilt put on an innocent man. My guilt, my sin on an innocent man. That beating should have been yours and mine. Those nails in his hands and feet should have been ours. But he was not a victim. He was the victor for us. For us. That's where it's heading. This is what we look at when we talk about Good Friday. This is what we celebrate on Easter morning. The victory. We finally see it. But until that time, it looks bad. And in the demonic realm, they're probably dancing and cheering around that cross until the stone rolled away. Jesus knew who he was. And the rest of that verse says, he had come forth from the Father and was going back to God. You know what I see there? He knew his identity. So in that verse, I see Jesus understood his authority and he understood his identity. And and you've heard me say it so many times, that's what you and I need to understand to live in freedom. Your identity is you are a child of the Most High God. You are a daughter or a son of the Most High God. That's who you are. Don't let any man or woman or anybody else label you. That's who you are. You are a child of the God, the child of the King. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. There it is, the authority. Jesus knew who He was. He knew His identity. He knew His authority. And He says, you and I are seated with Him in heavenly places at the right hand of Father, the Father. We are joint heirs with Christ. What's that mean? I am a child of God and I have been given authority. Gal, if we get that, the church will rise up and kick the devil's butt. I mean, that's not very... Delete that. We will kick his... That's good scriptural. He will be under our feet where he belongs. That's where he belongs. That's what the Bible says. That's where he's at. He has no legal authority in my life or your life if you're a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. Are you a son or a daughter? That's who you are. What do you have as authority? My position? I am seated with Christ in heavenly places as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have authority over all that the atonement took care of. Over the power of sin. Over the power of death. He has taken our pains. He has taken our infirmities. He's healed. It's all that He's delivered us from bondage. We don't have to live like we're still lost. I don't want to just go to heaven and live a horrible life on earth. Besides, I'd be a terrible ambassador for Christ. I want to embrace, as our mission statement is, I want to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. That's what I want. Why? Because that's why he died. Can you imagine if I said, here, I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars. And you said, thanks, I think I'll take 10% of it. 
Right? You don't want it all? No, I just want 10%. You're, no, that's not very smart. You're stupid. In a sense, that's how we are. Out of ignorance, lack of knowledge, lack of teaching, we, we say, thank you, God, for dying for my sins. Now, that's awesome. That's the big deal. We're going to heaven. But what about the rest? If he died for my deliverance, I want to be set free of all those strongholds in my life. I don't want to live in the bondage of guilt and shame and condemnation and fear of rejection, fear of man. I don't want to live there. And if he died to take my sickness and my disease and my infirmities, I don't want to live there either. I want the whole works. I want the whole works. And we need to rise up and say, if this is what the Bible says, this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to live as a child of God. I'm going to walk in the authority of a believer. Don't let the world and your circumstances steal that truth. It can look like sometimes we are up to here in it. Maybe even up to here in it. Maybe we're buried in it. Doesn't change the Word of God for a split second. We need to say that's a nothing but a mountain that God's going to move. That's nothing. Okay, let's see. Where was I? Amen. Cindy, now's when you speak up. Okay, let's see. There's a reason I have notes. From here, Jesus goes to the washing of the disciples' feet. And what a, what a demonstration of humility. The King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to wash the disciples' feet. And I'm not going to go into the story. It's great. Read it. Peter does it again. I love Peter. He says, you aren't washing my feet. Get to give me a bath. But that's not the point I want to focus on. I want to focus on <clears throat> the humility that Jesus has. Becoming a servant. What really enables him or enables us to walk in that kind of servanthood and humility is understanding who you are and your authority. Humility is not laying down on the ground and letting the world walk all over you. That's not what it is. Humility is knowing who I am in Christ. I'm a child of God. I don't need to impress you or any other man. I don't need to fear you or any other man. You're going to kill me? Thank you for punching my ticket to heaven. Really, that's where we need to live. And that's what, when Jesus is, is humbling himself, he knew who he was. He knew his authority. And he washes our feet. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it tells us this picture of humility. Talking about Jesus, it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, you know, Jesus, I don't want to leave heaven. No. He says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a bond servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the cross. And he goes through then, as you read this chapter, the washing of their feet. I want to share something with you that a pastor named David Guzik wrote and for those of you that went through the Bible study class, he's one of the commentaries you can read in the Blue Letter Bible online that you use. But he, he wrote this. He, he illustrates a, a picture, and I never looked at it this way before. Probably should have. I don't know. But I want you to look at this illustration the way he looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
It says in the Scripture, he rose up from supper. They had been reclining at the table, a place of comfort, a place of peace, a place of rest. And it says he rose up from that just as he rose up from his throne in heaven, a place of comfort at the right hand of the Father. He rose up. And as he laid aside his garments, we see he took off his garments at the, at the table that day, took off his garments and, and became a servant. He set aside his garment to wash their feet, just as he set aside his garment of glory in heaven to come to earth as a servant. Wow, that's amazing. He took up a towel and girded himself. He was ready to work. He came to earth and took the form of a servant, ready to work. He poured the water into the basin, ready to clean their feet. He poured out his blood to wash away our sin. And then after he had done all this, he put his garment back on and he went and sat back down at the table, that place of rest and comfort. And at the end of this death and resurrection, he puts on his garment of glory and he sends back to the throne in heaven in the fullness of his glory and is seated back at the Father's right hand. God, what an awesome picture that is of the washing of the feet. And in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13, I start with chapter 31 and verses 31 and 32 because in my mind, I mean, if you watch, how many of you watched the Passion of Christ movie once or twice or ten times? I mean, I can't help but think of the crucifixion. That movie comes to mind. And boy, it can give me a worldly view of what Jesus had to go through. I see that scenes of that movie and it's just like the, the violent beatings that he took, the, the mocking, the ridicule, the humiliation, then the ultimate nailing to a cross and dying. And And what was Jesus' view of this? Look at verse 31 and 32. And I want to just point out, look how that verse starts. Therefore, when he was gone. You know who the he was? Judas. He had just told Judas to get get away. Go do what you're going to do. And it's like as soon as it says, then when he was gone, it's like this dam burst and Jesus is going to let go with all this amazing teaching we see in the next four chapters. Anyway, he says, when, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him himself and will glorify him immediately. That word glorified and glorify is in there so many times, it just gets confusing. Five times in those two verses, He's looking at the cross and what's coming and says, God is going to be glorified in this. Finally, the thing I've been looking for all this time, God, there's an anguish in my soul, but God is going to be glorified. I am going to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified immediately. What does it mean to be glorified? The word glory is doxa in the Greek. And it means to glory, to to bring dignity, to, to bring honor, to bring praise, and to bring worship. 
And to glorify or glorified something, it just simply is doxazo. It's a little bit different word in the Greek. And it just means to render or esteem glory. Jesus is saying that cross is going to bring glory and honor and praise and worship to me, to the Father. The Father is going to be so glorified, He's going to glorify me. I'm going to get more praise, more glory, more honor. And I'm going to get glorified immediately. I'm not going to stay dead. The tomb won't hold me. It's going to happen. And then he drops the bomb on his disciples and says, where I'm going, you can't come. Verse 33. Little children, speaking to his 11. I am with you a little longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he does something really interesting. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says, by this love, everybody will know that you're a disciple. This should be the distinguishing characteristic of a child of God, the love of Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of other characteristics, but they all listed below this one. I'm leaving you. And then a new commandment. The new there, if, you, if you're familiar with the Word of God, it doesn't sound a whole lot new, does it? Way back in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. The word new here is, it has a different meaning than, it's not like, that's an old one, throw it out. It's like, we're going to refresh that thing a little bit. It's a little worn, but we're going to refresh it. And he takes it to a whole nother level by inserting him and what he's about to do into that commandment. He says in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. And now here he says, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, be willing to lay down your life for one another. A whole new level. And he says, let this be the mark of fellowship. When people see you, Let them see this love. And they will know. They will know you're my disciples. You are know my you're my children. How will they know you? We used to sing those little songs in Sunday school too. They're gonna know you by your love. By your love. You can tell them all you want, you're a Christian, but you don't love and it doesn't mean anything. Let them see you love them the way Jesus loved. So as we're heading towards Easter. What can I, can I take away from today? What can I take away from what we've looked at? A couple of things I would like to just remind us and review. One, we need to remember he was in control of all things. He was the victor, not a victim. We need to understand that. We need to know that about him. We need to know also about him that his love for us is eternal. Do not listen to the lies of the enemy, whether they're spoken through another person or they're a voice that's speaking to you in your head, that somehow or other, you're not loved. He loves you. Jesus knew who he was. He knew his identity and he knew his authority. Do we as believers know our identity and our authority? If you don't know that you're a child of God, it's just not that complicated. If you're here and you don't know for sure that you're a child of God and you're wondering what in the world does that even mean, it simply means this, that sometime in your life, if not before, 
I'd encourage you, today would be a good day. But sometime in your life, we acknowledge, you know what? I am a sinner. And the Bible says the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus died in my place. And if you will accept that reality that I'm a sinner, I can't earn my salvation, I can't earn my ticket to heaven on my own, the only way that I can be set free of the power of sin and death is to accept that free gift, free to me that cost Jesus his life. And you accept that gift, acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, and surrender your life to him. If you would really do that, really believe it in your heart, and you mean it in your mind, that's how you become a child of God. And the moment you do that, really do that, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And your Holy Spirit, your body and the Holy Spirit are in, your spirit and the Holy Spirit are in union. That's amazing. God that spoke and everything became now lives in me. Wow. I'm that temple. The temple of God. That's you when you're a child of God. If you don't know that for sure, pray that prayer. Ask Him, surrender yourself, and talk to somebody here. There's a whole lot of people who would love to have the opportunity to experience that with you. And the authority. We walk in humility, but we walk in power. We walk in authority. It's not like worldly authority where we can get all puffed up and say, boy, aren't I all it. No, it's, you know what? It's not really my authority. It's the authority of Jesus that he has given to us. He says, in my name. In other words, by what, who I am and what I've done, you can now have this authority. And boy, oh boy, can we start to walk in freedom. And boy, can we be used to minister to other people as we move in the power and authority of Christ. Do you know who you are and do you know your authority? Jesus, going to the cross, knew that this is going to glorify the Father. All of our lives are supposed to glorify the Father. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us all things were created by Him to bring Him glory. Does my life glorify the Father? We're never going to be perfect on this earth. But is that our heart and is that, our, is that our, our will and are we working at bringing Him glory through the way we live? We have the Holy Spirit in us who wants to do that through us, to glorify Him. And last, do we love with the love of Christ? If I could wish or pray for any one thing when people talk about Victory Christian Church, it would be this. They could say all the things they want to about what we do or how we act or don't do and don't act, but if they would end it with saying, but there's something about those people love people with a love that's not normal. That would be the love of Christ. Let's close and pray together. Lord, I do thank you so much that your spirit dwells in each one who knows you as their Lord and Savior. Father, that that offer of of, of becoming a child, being adopted into your family is available to all who would receive the word and the gift of Christ, his death and resurrection. 
I pray, Lord, as we go into this Easter season where people are more open to talking about Easter, that we would have those opportunities to lovingly share with them the hope that we have in Easter. What you've done for us through Good Friday and Easter. Lord, I pray that our lives would truly bring glory and honor to you. So, Lord, we... We ask now that as we go our separate ways, you would go before us, that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, that you would keep us. God, as we all go on our different paths that we are going to be taking this week, and there are different paths, I pray that you know the path and you are smoothing out the road before us. And God, that you are going to provide us the opportunities to be your hands and feet, to minister to others, to truly bring glory and honor to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.